I guess by now you're probably <coughs> beginning to see that how impacting Romans chapter 8 is on our lives. I, I guess probably it's for what it contains as far as the doctrinal material, it's probably the greatest single chapter in the Bible that contains so much for you and for me. I mean, the whole book of Romans is an incredible book, as you know, as we've been working our way through it. But Romans chapter 8, I, I told you the other week, there, we could be in Romans 8 for six, seven, eight months. I mean, there's just so much material in here. And uh, last week, you know, we were, we were coming through a, a portion of it, uh, and we got into the millennial reign of Christ. Remember I told you that Romans 8 breaks itself down into four sections. And you got to have these sections somewhere in your Bible, either at the beginning so of chapter 8 or breaking it down however you go through it. But we talked about verses 1 through 14, and we, we preached our way through this, and we saw how it was a great practical section. We looked at verses 15 through 22, and, uh, you know, I told you that Romans chapter 8 is the great chapter that deals with the redemption of our body, and it talks about the fact that there's two adoptions, one spiritual and one physical, and in, in the second section in verses 15 through 22 deals with that spiritual adoption, the day you got saved, basically. And then the third section is where we're at right now, and that's verses 23 through 32, and that deals with the physical adoption. And everything in that passage has to do with Christ coming, His establishing the millennial reign of Christ, and you and I getting our glorified bodies to the point where uh, we become just like Christ, and it's an incredible uh, aspect. And then chat, uh, the fourth section, verses 33 through 39, uh, it deals with the total victory that we have in Christ as a child of God in light of everything else that we've studied in Romans chapter 8. It's a great passage, and we'll have a great time with that. But it was in this third section, that you remember, that we were talking about uh, uh, the second adoption. And the second adoption in, that, in, that, in the verses we were looking at the last couple of weeks had to do with the uh, coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the establishment of the millennial reign of Christ. We took a Sunday, and we talked about and defined the millennial reign of Christ, just like we did the rapture before we started chapter 8, so you'd have some kind of context. And then we began to look at uh, the uh, great aspects of the millennium. And we, I told you how that Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48 was the great uh, passages in the Bible that really lays out the millennial reign of Christ. And then I, I talked about Ezekiel chapter 47. And we talked about how that in the millennium, the water of life flows out from under the throne of God. It comes down and uh, goes into the desert and, and then moves out. And we talked about how Ezekiel was told to walk through this river or into this river and from his ankles to his knees to his loins and then to what was basically over his head. And, and I took that and gave you a great example of, of, your, of, of a great defining passage in the Bible that really helps you understand how you to walk in the Spirit how that you continue to grow in the Spirit of God, walk in the Spirit of God. And this river flowing, we saw, is a picture of the Holy Spirit of God, and you and I moving into it, coming to the point where we become more like Christ every day of our lives and accomplish uh, more for Him as we get more into Him and all the things that God does for us. I want to look at verse uh, 23 today, and we're going to move on down through some of this, but uh, 23 is still in our third section here, and it says this. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, uh, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption 
of our body. Now that verse goes right along with what we've talked about. And remember I showed you in the uh, last section when we were talking about the millennium, one of the things that we talked about is how that the whole earth gets liberated. Not only do you and I get our glorified bodies and do we get liberated from the bondage of this flesh, but the world gets liberated. The world is under a curse because of Adam's sin. And that curse has impacted the world in, in natural disasters and in all kinds of problems and circumstances that really uh, mess with the world and just give it all kinds of problems. We talked about the animals, the animals being liberated. That in the millennial reign of Christ, we talked about Isaiah chapter 11 and, and where the whole creation groaneth and how that the animals get liberated. That in the millennial reign of Christ, a little baby will lead a lion and, and uh, there'll be no more meat-eating animals. They won't be carnivorous. They won't be, they won't be uh, wild anymore. Everything will be under subjection to the Lord. And we looked at that. And that's why it says in verse 23, and not only they, the animals and the creation, but ourselves also, you and me, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And boy, that's such a true statement. If you're a good Christian, or you try to be a good Christian, uh, you know as well as I do that this whole world is a real struggle for us. There probably isn't a day in your life that you don't get upset with yourself about something. There probably isn't a day in your life that you don't get discouraged with yourself because of the fact that you, we fail God. We all do. And the real child of God, the, the, the closer you get to God, the more you build your relationship with God, the more you are focused on pleasing Him and the less pleased you are with yourself when you, when you, you mess up from what God wants you to do. People, people ask me all the time, well, you know, if you become a Christian, uh, you, you're telling me that a Christian can just go out and do whatever he wants to do or whatever she wants to do and they can still be a Christian? Well, let me just say this to you. The mark of a true Christian, I can't tell if you're saved or not, have no way of knowing. Uh, I'm the only one I can know for sure is me, and I worry about me sometimes. But, but when I look at you and I see me and I see us and our struggles and everything in our life, you know what? The truth of the matter is, the more you should be like Christ, the more you become like Christ, the less you're going to want to do wrong that disappoints Him. I can't conceive in my mind of a Christian that would get saved, build a real good relationship with God where you're becoming more closer to Him and you walk with Him and everything that you do with Him, and still joy in going out and just do what the world does. The two don't compute. No. The more you become like Christ, the less you want to do the things of the world. And as the Bible says, we groan within ourselves. Every one of us, if you're saved this morning. Every one of you out there that maybe struggle in life with something, or you want to get to the point where you have uh, areas in your life that uh, you know you've got to work through and work on, that every day we groan within ourselves. And then he says in verse 24, for we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, what doth he yet hope for? Now, I want to explain the word hope here. Look at verse 25, too, because he uses it again. And you want to get this in your Bible, because this is, becomes a confusion for people. Verse 25 says, But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Now, the word hope in verse 24 isn't a, a thing where you hope you're saved. No, no, it's not used that way. It's used in the sense that Jesus Christ is our only hope. That's the way it's used. It's not used in the sense that, gee, I hope I'm saved. When this thing all comes down, I hope I'm found, uh, you know, saved and in Christ. No, it's not what it's talking about. It's talking about that our only hope that we have is in Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. 
Verse 25 talks about that same hope, Christ. Our hope in, is completed when we get my, our new body. And that's what he's talking about. When we get our glorified body, the hope that I have in Christ, not that I hope I'm saved, but that He is my only hope, will be realized when I get my glorified body. And you need to put a little note in there um, because it, it shows you how that verse is used. And many times young Christians will read that and they'll say, well, it says the word hope. Well, I mean, does that mean that we have to hope we're saved? No, it's more important than that. It, it's talking about that Christ is your only hope. And uh, the hope for me today is the fact that uh, maybe today I'll get my glorified body. And that's what, it, to end this uh, and this struggle that we're all going through, the groaning within ourselves. These three verses basically deal with the, complete, uh, the completeness of our salvation. And I, and I say that and explaining it the way we did when we came through it. Uh, right now, and remember I said this, and I'll say it again just so I clarify it. Right now, right now, your, your soul has been saved. Right now, your soul is saved. But you still have your old flesh. You still have the body that you have to deal with every day of your life, all right? You've been adopted the first time spiritually. What we're waiting for is the adoption of my body. And when that happens, my hope will be complete. And, of course, uh, that's what he's talking about. The salvation of our soul is right now. The salvation of my body is when the rapture comes and Christ comes back and gives me my glorified body. Then I want you to look at verse 26, 27, and 28. And this is where our message is today. This is where we're going to start today, and again, we're going to start with another great defining passage that uh, is much needed subject in our lives. And I told you Thursday night that we're going to get into the passage of Romans chapter 8 that talks about our prayer life and what prayer should be and how you better understand prayer. Uh, let's read it in verse 26. It says this, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the, of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today. And we come to you wanting to learn something about our relationship with you. And Lord, I learn as much from uh, teaching this and taking all my week and putting it together as, as probably more so than most of the people sitting here will learn from it today. But Lord, I want them to learn from this. My job as pastor is to help them build their relationship with God. And we can never have a relationship with God the way it should be without understanding the concept of prayer. So help us approach this prayerfully, help us approach this openly and honestly, and help us to always look within ourselves to find where we can make our relationship with God better uh, than it is right now. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Forgive us where we fail thee and put us under the blood that we may learn from your word today by your spirit. In Jesus' name we ask it and for his sake, amen. Now, this is another great definitive passage, as I said, that deals with the aspect of our prayer life. You remember a while back, I, I told you that uh, the Bible lists three separate infirmities that we all struggle with. In fact, I think I preached a message on it. But you'll remember that I talked about Romans chapter 6, verse 19, where it talks about the infirmity that we have in our flesh. I took you back to Psalm 77, 10, 
and I showed you there the, uh, the, 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 what we, that we have an infirmity of forgetting what God has done for us. And then I brought you to Romans chapter 8, verse 26, and I talked about the infirmity that we all have where the Bible says that we simply uh, don't know how to pray as we ought. I guess that is probably the single greatest absolute truth that I've ever learned about prayer. And uh, I, I know beyond any shadow of any doubt that, uh, that as a human being, the hardest thing for me to grasp is the concept of prayer. There are so many aspects to it that, that we as God's people don't know today. And my goal is to help you uh, have a better understanding of it. Uh, you know what? Those three infirmities that we, we listed there, I can guarantee you every problem we face can be traced back to one of those three or not multiples of those three. You know, I always enjoying, and I, I kind of call it going on the record, uh, to, to, so to speak, on a crucial issue. Uh, I, I talked about, uh, you know, we've talked about prayer on Thursday nights. There have been people that have questioned about it. Some of us have talked about it one-on-one. But, uh, you know, uh, but when the opportunity presents itself like this, that we can openly take the time in a definitive passage in the Bible that we can really lay it out and document it, uh, that we don't not can have a time factor, that, you know, we can take three weeks, four weeks, whatever it takes, and, and completely exhaust uh, what the Bible says about this, that we can better understand it. I think that uh, um, I think it's a great thing. You remember the last three weeks we took a we took a, a a three weeks and talked about defining your spiritual growth. We did we we, un- we turned over every st- every stone. We looked under everything in the Bible, and now you should basically have that uh, at your grasp, be able to help yourself. N- next couple of months we're going to deal with an, a heresy within the church called Calvinism. And I want you to understand what that is, and we're going to go through that in great detail because you're going to be talking to people, dealing with people, and you're going to be finding people that are hung up on that, that bad teaching, and you need to know how to deal with it. Romans chapter 8 is just loaded. And uh, so today, we're going to begin to talk about uh, the aspect of, of prayer. Now, in my own personal life, what I've done over the years, and uh, I know you think that... Uh, I have a photographic memory and can memorize all this stuff and keep all this stuff, and and that's simply not true. What I've done is found a very workable system for me. And I encourage you that are going to really learn the Bible at some point that you do the same thing. What I've done over the years is I've built me basically an archive of Bible material. You know, you'll go into most pastor's libraries and uh, you'll find you know, a wall in his office as long as this and filled with books on it. And uh, there are books that I guarantee you, there are books that he has, but he has never read. And there seems to be a, an idea that when you go into a pastor's office, the more books he has, the more, the more, you know, you think he knows what he's talking about. And that's not necessarily true. Now, I found over the years that most of the material that they have on their shelves, and one of the first things I do, by the way, when I go into a, a pastor's office, or even I'm invited to your house at some point, one of the first things I do is, if you have your books displayed out there, you know, I look at the books you read. I look at it just because, one, I may find something in there that, that, uh, that I would like to read, and so later on when you come downstairs and can't find it, it's because I borrowed it, you know. And there may be a little card in there that says, I will return this someday, somehow, some way. But anyway, uh, but, 
but if you would if you would see my where I work, and uh, if you would see where I where I my laboratory as I speak, where I do all my stuff putting together, you would not find four or five thousand books. You would find probably a hundred, maybe a hundred and fifty uh, books. You'd find a, a lot more tapes. And what you would find is over the years that I have I have archived material that I think to myself, this is exactly what I need to always remember. Some of those you will find in book form. Uh, some of those you will find in just small pamphlet forms. Some of them you will find in tape, and I will have them marked, uh, and there'll just be a segment of a tape that will that will define for me a particular thing in the Bible that I want to get have at my fingertips if I need it. If I want to, if I want to brush up on something in the Bible, uh, not and my notes don't suffice me, then I know right where to go to pull that book, pull that tape, pull that pamphlet, to sit down and have it exactly what I want without having to wade through a bunch of stuff that doesn't mean anything to find what I what I want. I, I will catalog those things in a kind of like in a notebook that I can just go to my notebook. All right, you want to find the millennium. All right, here's the material you want. You want church history from a from a quick standpoint. Here's the material you want. And and I found that that archiving that material in my own life has really helped me deal with the uh, uh, a quick reference uh, on any issue in the Bible and any person in the Bible too. Uh, I found a number of books over the years that are invaluable. That uh, some of them that will they will have every uh, the, every person in the Bible. Now you can't you can't put a value on a book like that. They don't write books like that today. A quick reference that if you're putting a sermon together or you're doing a study and there's a guy by the name of Rufus. Now who in the world is Rufus? You know, well you can got a book where you automatically you can go through and go and it's all alphabetic order and you find out what you need to know about this guy Rufus or whoever. Those kind of books are invaluable. And every serious Bible student, anybody who's going to, in time, get a handle on the Bible, uh, you're not going to remember everything that you study. You're not going to be able to put everything in your Bible that you need to have. So you're going to have to come up with an archival system where you can archive this material, get it at a ready reference glance, and get it where you need to get it. Now, lessons like this, that we're going to talk about on prayer, lessons like we taught last week. Uh, And when I teach, I don't know if you've even picked up on my method to what I do. When I teach, I teach in that kind of format. Because many of the times I I will use those things for my own personal deal to put them in there if I haven't exhaustively taught on them before. Many of them already have in my Bible. But you take the subject of spiritual growth. You'll never get any more material in any more concise way than what we did the last three weeks. Take those three tapes, or however many they are, and you archive them. Of course, when I was doing it, we didn't have CDs. I, when I was coming up in it, cassettes were just coming into their own, you see. I mean, I still remember eight-track players. I mean, you guys don't remember those things, but, but uh, I still have one. But anyway, but you take that material and you, you, you put it where you can get your hands on it. You label it. And, of course, for prayer... It's the same thing. And this will be a definitive lesson on it that will help you uh, in everything that you do. And the true Bible student will have to build their own library of material. And, uh, you know, and I think the way I deal with it, when I teach, when I study a subject or I want to get a subject down, and a lot of the way I teach you is the way I study myself. I think in dealing with any subject, you need to get the misconceptions out of the way first. 
You know what? The lack of Bible doctrine in our lives and in the life of uh, in Christianity today has not only produced some real heresies within the body of Christ, but it's produced a ton of misconceptions. And this is why God's people are so shallow today. I have never seen a time in my life when God's people are more shallow when it comes to the things of the Bible. And I'm telling you, I've never seen a time where God's people had more misconceptions about things in the Bible. I mean, what was standardized a hundred years ago uh, for the church to believe, now many of the things that are looked at by people today that are Christians, they don't even believe them anymore. And many of the many of the crucial concepts and principles about your life and my life and the Bible and how we do things as Christians has been lost today. I told you last week that the key to as a Christian for your success in ministry or whatever you're going to do for God was simply learning and then executing the basics. The basic representing the principles of God. And my ministry is based on that concept. Take your Bible and turn back to Isaiah. I want to show you something here. And uh, so you get an idea of where I'm coming from. Isaiah chapter 28. And we've talked about this before, but I want, to, I want to show you how important it is. You see, I just don't want to stand up here and teach you the material because I know I've got Bible students in here and, and most of you really want to learn the Bible. So I do, I do you a great injustice if I just give you the material without giving you the model by which you find the material. Because my goal is not for you just to come and get it off of me all the time. My goal is for you to develop yourself in your life where you get, to get this material uh, for yourself. Look at Isaiah chapter 28 talking about Bible principles. You hear me say a lot about Bible principles. Because the principles of the Bible are what keeps you from messing your life up and getting hung up out there in something that you think may be right, but in actuality has nothing to do with God. And it happens all of the time. Now look what he says here in verse 9. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 9. He's speaking to the nation of Israel, but it's also true for you and for me in a general sense. Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Now you see that? Now that's the number one goal in your life and my life. Understanding Bible doctrine. The word doctrine, and I've told you this many, many times, the word doctrine means to teach. You need to learn as a child of God what the Bible teaches about every issue in life, every subject in life. And that's why I will drive you nuts. I will bug you up one side and down the other. It'll be every other word out of my mouth will be biblical principles or biblical doctrine. That is the only safe way to walk with God and build your life is based on that. All right, verse 9. Whom shall he teach knowledge and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Watch this. That was a question, by the way. Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. Then he's talking about a baby Christian, somebody that is still on the milk of the Word of God. That's where many of you are right now. Some of you are a little bit farther down the line. You're eating, you know, you're eating semi-solid food. Some are eating them little beanie weenies you get in a can, you know. And, uh, but you're, you're there. You're, you're, most of you are, are right in this area. This applies to you. And you've got to see this. For precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Now, you know what he just told you? He told you the way to learn Bible doctrine is by precept, that's a principle, upon precept, line upon line. 
you take the basic principles that I give you about everything that we talk about, and those principles, when you put them together, will form and make Bible doctrines. The principles are the key aspect of your life. I don't care what you do in life. I don't care what you attempt to do in life for God. It has to be run by the principles of God or you're going to mess it up. I don't care what you do. There has to be a right way, ladies and gentlemen, and there has to be a wrong way, and there will never be two right ways. There'll be lots of wrong ways, but there'll only be one right way. And that right way will be based on biblical principles. And the way you get that as a young Christian is you let me teach you. You want to get to the point where you understand doctrine. And right now you're still leaning on the milk. But the way you get to that point is to take precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. What does that mean? It means you get some on Sunday morning. It means you get some on Thursday night. It means you get some in your discipleship. It means you get some in your going to the different classes you go to. And you add to that. That's why it's so important for so many of you young guys to get into this class that Scott's teaching, just like it was so important for some of you ladies to get into the one that Barb taught. It is the beginning and the assemblance of Bible doctrine and Bible principles. And what Scott is going to do, what he is going to do, is giving you the principles of life from which you're going to build doctrines. You're going to do it here a little, there a little, and in time you're going to grow to the point where you get past the milk and you become everything that God wants you to be when it comes to uh, the Word of God. You know, remember when you were in school, grade school, way back when? And remember when we were in grade school, uh, if you'll notice that in every school, and I, every, a teacher told me one time that there was a design behind this. I don't know if he was just telling me that or not. But you remember in every school classroom you've been in, you know what they have around the top of the classroom? The ABCs. It's, it's standardized. There was two things you could always count on when I went to school. The ABCs were across the ceiling on the top of the board and in a half-finished picture of George Washington. I didn't ever finish the hand bubble. He's just from here up, you know. Didn't make him look any better if they would have finished it, but that's what I remember from school. Now you're saying that's all you got out of school? <laughs> yeah, pretty much, but anyway. <laughs> remember how you, now, if I would give you a piece of paper today and every one of you, and I would say, write me an essay. Write me a hundred-word essay on your relationship with Christ. And I would get them back from you. They would probably be pretty good. But what would be amazing is how that you have an ability to use words. And those words, you form sentences. From those sentences, you form paragraphs. From those paragraphs, you form ideas. And from the ideas, you lay out and put together all kinds of, of communicational concepts where you can write a thesis paper. But you know where it goes back to? Your ability to write theses or, or reports or uh, do extenuated uh, writing where you put it in some kind of form. You know where it started? All the way back with your ABCs. It started all the way back when you were just a little tyke and you went to school and you, went a, you got them out where you made a, a big A and a small A right next to each other. And then you made, you, made, you made small, once you got them down, and you, you went through the vowels, A-E-I-O-N-U, and you learned how to do that. And then you took the words, and you made very basic, simple words. You took the word C-A-T, and you made cat. 
You, make, you took the words, you took the letters, uh, and you made very basic little words. And then, as you grew through that, you did the next step, is you took those basic words, and what did you do? You made sentences out of them. Oh, it wasn't, it wasn't incredible sentences. It wasn't, like, uh, it wasn't like anything that you'd read today or write today, but it was things like Tom see the cat. The cat saw the dog. The dog ate the cat. Basic little things like that. And then as you went through first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, by the time you were in fifth, sixth, seventh grade, you could take those basic little words that you got from those basic little ABCs and you could form very good sentences with them. Time you probably in junior high, you were required to do book reports, maybe before that. And now you were writing a little extensive essays about this or about that. You'd read a book and you'd take from the book and what they call reading comprehension and you'd, you'd write down what you comprehended from the book and you'd put it out into an outline or a book report or a thesis or some kind of writing that explained your ideas. And many times they were very detailed and very incredible. How did you get to take and speak that eloquently or write that good? How did you get to that point? The same way you will learn your Bible. You got there by taking the ABCs of the English language, making words with them, and then taking it to the point where in time you could write sentences, paragraphs, and just about write whatever you want to write. All right, the Bible's the same way. The precepts are the ABCs. The principles are the sentences. And once you take the ABCs and learn how to put them into sentences, spiritually speaking, what you form when you add them up is an understanding and a teaching of some specific thing in the Bible, which is called doctrine. That's the same way that you do it. It's just that simple. There's no magical formula to it. Just like you learn to read and write and you learn to be able to do the things that you do, you have to learn that process spiritually. Nobody just gets saved and says after two or three months, I got it. Nobody says saved after six or even a year and says, I got it all figured out. Nobody does that. That'd be like you in the third grade Going up and saying, well, I'm going I'm I'm to write my own Declaration of Independence and it'll be better than the one they got. You don't have the tools wherewith to do that, and neither you as a young Christian. When I was a kid, I started, I started playing the trumpet when I was probably in fifth grade. By the time I got to uh, uh, junior high, you know, I was, I was pretty decent. Uh, by the time I got into high school, uh, I, was a, I was a pretty accomplished trumpet player. And it was a situation where when I was a junior in high school, uh, my band director uh, said to me, he said, you know what? He says, you're really a good trumpet player, but he says, you could be a lot better. And he says, what I want you to do is this. I'm gonna, I have a friend of mine that, that his, his whole career is that he takes trumpet players and he takes them and he's turned out state champion trumpet players for I don't know how many years. This guy really knows how to take out of you what is really the good and mold it into the point where he makes you an incredible trumpet player. And I said, that's fine. I said, that's great. And, of course, the guy's name was Wayne Rigger. And Wayne Rigger is dead now, I'm sure, because he was old back then. This is back in the 60s, late 60s. Wayne Rigger was a very accomplished trumpet player. He was an incredible trumpet player. And he took, his specialty was taking young men and young ladies and, and taking them where they were, and as good as they sounded, and you'd know this, William, as good as they sounded, 
they, the technique had to be worked on. There were certain things that he instilled in you that, that maybe at a glance you wouldn't see it, but after you were with him for a year, you could hear the difference because of the things that he would teach you in the basic concepts. Now, when I went in there the first time, he said, well, he says, uh, and I had never met the guy before, and I go in there and we talk for a little while, and he says, well, he says, uh, I'll accept you, and he said, uh, what I want you to do, he says, I want you to get a book that I have written, uh, and it's a music book that we're going to use in our studies. And I'm thinking, oh, great, this guy had wrote the book. I can get this book down and get it, and I'll be a great trumpet player. And I said, it's probably some fantastic book that's got just everything in it and all the secrets. And I paid him $2 or $3 for it, and I looked at it, I thought to myself, and I walked out to the car. This is ridiculous. You know what the name of the book was? It was called The Talking Trumpet. It was a little stick guy with a trumpet on his head. And every page, this talking trumpet spoke to you in a little caption. And all this book was, all this book was, was the basic fundamentals of the trumpet and trumpet playing. And I went home and I thought to myself, what is this? Then we go. And when I went in there, I thought, boy, I got this down really good. I went in and played for him. He said that was terrible. Terrible. He says, let me play it for you. And when he played it for you, I thought, whoa. Now, what did he do that I didn't do? You know what he had me focusing on? He said, you're, every note you're playing, play one note. Da, too long. Da, not long enough. He says, you want that note to be absolutely in its duration the same of every other note you play. And I'm thinking to my, now I got to tell you the end of the story. We didn't get along very well when I didn't, he, he, he kicked me out after a while. You know why? I just never had the self-discipline to da instead of duh. I just never did. I just, I could not discipline myself to what is, was, is really the key uh, and, and put it all together. And I'll tell you what, you know what, my problem why, why I was never a great trumpet player is because I never understood the theory behind it. You heard William play here last week, and it's very obviously that William understands the theory behind music. I bet you you could get into a, you could hook up with a band right now, and if they started playing a song, you could pick up your sax and join right in and not have to ask what key it is, not have to worry about it, and probably never miss a note in the thing. See? That's what a great musician does. You know why? Because he understands the theory behind the playing of the trumpet. He understands key changes. He to me, key changes was going down to the hardware store and having some new keys made. I mean, he understands modulation, how you move into, if you're going to go from one key to another, you've got to modulate by, by doing something that blends it in. Because if you start playing in one key and the next verse jump up to another key, it sounds terrible. Unless you understand the theory behind going from one key to another key. See, I never understood the theory. I could play the trumpet but I had never understood the theory behind playing the trumpet. I didn't want to discipline myself for that stuff because I thought to my, and I got to tell you the truth, I thought to myself, that is so stupid. I play the trumpet well, and I play it good. I sound good. I can just about do anything that, that I, I want to do with it except stuff that I'll probably never really wanted to, need to do. And my downfall was the fact that you're not a good trumpet player or any other musician unless you understand the theory behind it. 
And I was never willing to discipline myself to learn the theory. Now, I said all that to say this. Some of you are like that with the Bible. See? You know the Bible. You're pretty good with the Bible. But you don't know the theory behind the things in the Bible. It's not enough just to know the Bible. Do you know why you believe what you believe about the Bible? I was a good trumpet player. You give me a piece of music and I could, I could read it, I could sight read fairly well, but you put me in a, in a situation where that I had to change keys and do all of this and do all of that without having somebody tell me what I needed to go to and just know it and feel it and see it because of everything that everybody else is doing. I couldn't do that. And in that sense, I was very limited in my, in my ability to play the trumpet. And I, I, I'll be honest with you. And everything in my life, everything, everything in my life, I was only willing to go as far as I wanted to get out of it. You know why I never learned the theory? Because why? I was president of the band. I sat first chair trumpet. I felt like I had it. Why do I need to go through that hard work to get the other stuff when I'm doing okay the way I am? But you see, but that was my limited perspective. And most of us, many times, God's people are the same way. They think, well, why should I really get to that depth in the Bible? Well, I know the three spiritual laws, and I know, you know, I know this, and I know that, and I, I've been around now, I know a lot of things about the Bible. Yeah, but the bottom line is, do you know the theory behind it, you see? And I'm getting ready to say is the fact that prayer has a theory behind it, just like everything else in the Bible. Because it's that lack of theory that have put up some real misconceptions in God's people's mind about prayer. In other words, there's more to prayer than just asking God for something. There's, just, there's more to prayer than just sitting down and telling God what your needs are. There's a theory behind prayer. Now let me take the word theory because I know the men and I say that based on our modern day use of the word theory. You think like the evolutionary theory where a theory is something that cannot be proven or something that nobody knows for sure is true. I'm not using the word theory in that sense. I'm using the word theory in the sense of a general expo uh, ex exposition of general principles about any subject. In other words, when I talk about, when I talk about music theory, I'm not talking about the same way I say the theory of evolution. The theory of evolution is, in that word, the word theory and the way it's used means that it's uncertain, nebulous, so to speak. It's a, it's a proposition. It's an idea that somebody put forth. When we're talking about music theory, we're talking about understanding the dynamics behind music that makes music work. And that's what I'm talking about when it comes to prayer in the Bible. So before we see what prayer is, if we're going to do this right, before we see what prayer is, it would be helpful to see what prayer isn't. And I want to, I want to take some misconceptions about prayer. I want to show you where they're at in the Bible, and I want to set a, pre a, a, a pretext from where we're going to go, or a pretense, not a pretense, pretext, context. Now, the first thing I want you to understand about prayer is prayer and unsaved people. This is a terrible misconception. Turn over to John chapter 9, verse 31. This is a terrible misconception. And you need to know what's, what's wrong before I can teach you what's right. Otherwise, it's going to get all jumbled in the middle. 
And I want to eliminate the bad stuff so when we finally get down to the bedrock stuff that we've got this stuff taken care of. John chapter 9, verse 31. Now here's what it says. Now we know that God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he hear. Now that first thing we've got right there and the first thing you've got to get out of your mind and get it straight on is that God does not hear the prayers of unsaved people. Now that's a terrible misconception today. God does not hear the prayers of unsaved people. And that somewhat, you know, bothers us to some degree, but here again, what I've just given you, you see, this is my point. You may want to think that God does. You may even thought that God does. You may desperately, because of your own scenario or somebody else's scenario, hope that He would, but the principle, the absolute principle of the Word of God says, Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. That's the principle on it. It doesn't require interpretation. It doesn't require your opinion on it. That is a principle. Now, you'll either accept that principle and move on, or you'll look at that principle and say, no thanks, and move away. That's that simple. God does not hear the prayer of an unsaved man. Why is that? All right, you're in John. Turn back one chapter to John chapter 8. Look at verse 44. Here's the reason. Talking to an unsaved man or unsaved woman. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. All right? Now, what the Bible is saying this, and you've heard this is basic 101, but just for the people here that maybe are new or people here that have just come into our church, let me just briefly tell you what we've got here. We know that there are two spiritual families in this world. When you were born the first time, you were born as a sinner. You were born in Adam's fallen image. And as you were born as a sinner, you bury the image of a sinner, and that is being born into the devil's family as a sinner. That's why the Bible says you have to be born the second time. That's why the Bible says we have to be born again. Your first birth puts you into the devil's family. Your second birth, when you get born again, takes you out of the devil's family and puts you into God's family. I preached a message on this years ago about year of your father, the devil. And I basically told the people, if you're here tonight and you're unsaved, you're in the devil's family. Well, who, nobody likes to hear that. And I had a woman come up at the end, actually came up at the end of the service. I don't know if she was saved or not. She made us not understood. She came up and she said, well, she said, I want you to know, she says, I didn't appreciate what you said about unsaved people being in the devil's family. Because that sounds pretty I mean, I got to admit, that's pretty radical stuff. I mean, I mean, you might say to an unsaved person, well, you need to be saved, or you know what, I'm praying for your brother or sister, or, or you know what, if I can ever help you. But just to look him in the eyeball and say, you know what, if you're unsaved, you're in the devil's family and you're his child. Woo, that's rough. So she came up to me and she was obviously visibly upset. And she said, she said I want you to know I took great offense to the fact that you said that, that uh, uh, we were in the devil's family. And I said, you know what, I understand and I, when I first heard it, I took offense too. But you know what I did? I got so mad I changed families. I said, when I first heard it the first time, I was living. 
Then I said, you know what I did? I got so mad, I simply changed families. You don't like it? I got a solution for you, ma'am. Just change families. Just because you got born into it doesn't mean you have to stay in it. I said, I got out. You can get out. You see, as an unsaved person, God doesn't hear our prayer. Why? Here's the problem. We talked about in Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27, what we talked about today, and, and when we opened, our, opened our, our verses here, and we found that the key was the Holy Spirit of God. The indwelling Holy Spirit of God inside you is the one that makes intercession for you in your prayer life. You don't think that you just, when you pray to God, that you just like picking up a cell phone, do you, and dial a number? No, no. Somebody has to take the prayer that you initiate in your heart and takes it up before the throne of God. It isn't like picking up a phone and saying, hey, God, are you up there? No, no, no. It's like that the Holy Spirit of God who lives inside you takes that prayer and takes it before the throne of God and actually makes intercession for you. See, well, an unsaved person doesn't have the Spirit of God, see? So there's no way. Now, let me say this, and i got to clarify this because I know my terminology is not good, but it's the best way I use it. I say God doesn't hear the prayer of an unsaved person. Obviously, He does. That's not a contradiction. It means that God knows everything. I mean, I'm out in my front yard, and I got some people across the street got little kids. And those little kids are out there that are playing. Then I'm in my front yard. They're in their yard. And mom and dad's in the house or the backyard or someplace, and that kid starts yelling that he wants to drink water. Do I run over and get him a drink of water? He's not my kid. You see, I heard he wanted a drink of water, but because he's not my child, I'm not going to get him a drink of water. All right? God hears the prayer of an unsaved person, but there's no response to it in that sense because you're not his child, see? You're not his child. Now, let me show you two more great principles on it. And I know what people say. I've heard them say all my life. Well, I, don't, I disagree, Bob. You know what? I, before I was saved, I was in a jam in my life one time, and I asked God to get me out of this jam, and God answered my prayer. Well, let's see about that. Let me show you the principles on it. Now, we're going to have to go back, and this we have to go back to the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. In the book, that's in the Old Testament. And it's right after Psalms, and it's right after, then Psalms, you have Proverbs, then you have Ecclesiastes. So I kind of give you a wider perspective to, to find it. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, look at verse 11. Now here's the principles on it. You want a principle? This is what, how God operates. You can either accept it or not accept it. Verse 11, Ecclesiastes 9, 11. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise or yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill. Watch it. But time and chance happen to them all. You see what you got there? He's saying that in many cases it's time and chance. Now, there's no time and chance for a Christian. Everything is set up, and God's got it orchestrated because the Holy Spirit of God has a plan for you. But the unsaved man, unsaved woman, has no plan other than to die and go to hell. 
And an unsaved man's life and an unsaved woman's life is time and chance. You know how some people get killed when, when you're an unsaved person? You know how you get killed? You begin in the wrong place at the wrong time. Chance. Chance. I mean, I, I got reading about, I got reading about uh, uh, this plane that crashed into this house uh, in uh, wherever it was there last week, and what a terrible tragedy that is. And here it is. Here's a plane. It's got 49 people on it plus its crew. It's coming into land, and it crashes in a house. Now, I don't know if these people in the house are saved or lost. I'm just going to say for the sake of argument they're lost. Maybe they're not. But it, it's not a judgment on them. I'm using it as an example. That plane took off, and that plane was flying through a populated area trying to land, and it got ice on its wings, and it could. Let me ask you a question. Why did it pick that house? You know there was houses all around that house? How come it hit that house? And you know in that house there was three people? A, a husband, a wife, and a, and a 21-year-old daughter? You realize the 21-year-old daughter came out with just scratches? The mother came out a little worse for wear, but she was all fine. But the dad got killed in that house. Now, who, who decides all that? Who decides all that? You see... If you don't know the theory behind the Bible, then those things produce a dilemma for you. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that they were saved. I'm just, uh, maybe they were, and it would be another scenario. I'm using this as an example. Let's say that they, the pilot was unsaved, the house, people in the house was unsaved. Let's just put in that scenario because there's plenty of scenarios where they are all saved, but I don't have any recollection of what I need. But this one is a good one because it's still fresh in our minds. How did, how did that plane pick that house? Did God pick that house? Did God say, hit that one? Did God say, you two die and you live? Now, the only involvement that God might have had in it, staying with our scenario that everybody in the house and everybody in the plane was unsaved, the only scenario that God may have had in the thing, if there were saved people living around there, and God said, don't hit them, hit him. <laughs> but let's say the whole town's lost. Let's say there wasn't anybody saved living in there within a 10-mile radius. That's probably true, knowing where the world is today. The Bible just told us that time and chance happened to them. Because God does not recognize anything that goes on. It's like that when Adam sinned and was an unsaved man, the automatic lever is switch of destruction. And if you're as an unsaved man or an unsaved woman, if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time or many times in the right place at the wrong time, time and chance happen to them all. I don't know what to tell you. There's no rhyme or reason to it because the world operates at its own pace. The world operates by its own system. Now, if you're a child of God, there's no time and chance in your life. You don't die by chance. You don't die by being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Ah, the Bible says it's appointed for you to die. God knows everything about you. And when you die, you can rest assured that you didn't die without God knowing and wasn't there at the time it happened. Now, maybe you died because you were out of fellowship with God and God chastised you. Maybe you died because God wanted to get all and glory out of your life. I don't know. But the bottom line is, for a child of God, there is no time and chance. For an unsaved man, it's all up to chance. Look at the next verse. Look over here at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 19. Just back a couple pages. 
Look at this. This is how God looks at unsaved people. Now, you got to remember, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's all talking about things on this world, the way they operate, without God involved in it. Look at 3.19. For that which befalleth the sons of men, unsaved people, befalleth beasts. There are your animals. Even one thing befalleth them, as one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they all have one breath, so that man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vain. See that thing? He just told you that an unsaved man living and dying is like an animal as far as God's concerned. Why? Because he's in the wrong family. And he's never changed families. And he's not God's child. So God has no preeminence over him. Now somebody says, well, uh, well, you know what? what uh, I was in the, and I had a guy tell me one time. He said, well, you know what? He said, I heard what you just said. But he said, I was in the war. And when I was in the war, I was in a situation. And I was in a situation where I didn't think I was going to get out of it. And you know what? I prayed, oh, God, get me out of it. And I get out of it. What do you do with that? And I said, well, first of all, just because you got out of it doesn't mean that time and chance wasn't involved. Because we already know the principle. You see, I, I guess this is what I got to get down to you. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. It doesn't matter how you rationalize it. It doesn't matter how much you want to believe that God hears an unsaved person. The principle clearly says that he doesn't. Now you can go the rest of your life overriding that principle or you can accept that principle and work from there. I told the guy, I said, well, you know what? Time and chance. The fact that you prayed and you got out of it means absolutely nothing when the principle says, first of all, God didn't hear you. Now, the other aspect is this. Maybe somebody else was praying for you. See? I've had situations where an unshaved man said, I'm praying and praying and praying, and, and God delivered me. And he thought his prayer did it, and then you talk to mom over here, and mom was on her knees almost the exact same time praying for her boy. See? God didn't answer his prayer, but he honored the mother's prayer because the mother was saved. See how the thing works? There's a theory. There's more to prayer than just opening your mouth and asking God for whatever. Okay, now the real shocker. Here it comes. Not only does God not hear unsaved people, but I'm about to show you now, and this is where we set the preface for where we're going. I'm going to show you why God doesn't hear 99% of God's people's prayers. Now, let me say this before we get into this, and I want everybody to listen to me. If you're a young Christian here, and you just got saved, or you're somebody who's trying to learn the Bible, don't not listen to what I'm saying, but understand that where you're at in your life right now, God is covering your bases because of the fact that you don't have the ability yet to grasp everything I'm saying. In other words, God has got you under a clause of protection. There's a time in your life, you know what I found? I found studying back there when the nation of Israel come out of Egypt, and God knew that they were going to have to fight against some really tough nations. And they had just come out of 430 years of bondage of Egypt. And God knows that the devil's got nations out there that want to wipe them off the face of this planet. Do you know what God did? God took them another way for about six or seven months. And he kind of took them out of the way of all the people out there that would wanted to kill them. 
And so they didn't have to fight for a while because God wanted to give them a period of grace to grasp themselves together, to get themselves organized, and to understand how God was doing and what He was doing before they had to meet their first foe. And God will do the same thing to you as young Christians. God will give you some grace. And God will, God will take care of you, honor your prayer, even when they're stupid prayers. Because your heart's right. It's as you grow spiritually and you get that thing where you want it your way and it don't matter what the Bible says where you start to have some problems, you see. And I'm going to make a statement here and, and, uh, and it's a, I believe it's a true statement. I think probably right now, 85% of you, maybe, maybe not quite that much, but I would say that 80 to 85% of you fall into that category. You're all young Christians. You really want to do what's right. You're in the process of learning the Bible. Some of you are being disciples. Some of you have just finished the women's class. Some of you are going to come to the men's class. And you really have a desire. I'm putting you into that thing where God is going to take care of you and, and, and give you what you need, cover your bases for you, even though you maybe yet at this point don't know how to pray. Okay? He's going to cover you. Me? There is no covering for. I can't speak for anybody. I speak for me. I, I have no excuse. I better know the theory behind prayer. And in time, you better learn the theory behind it because there comes a time when grace wears out. I mean, uh, I, I love the Raytown Police Department. You know why? Because they will not give a ticket to a man in his own neighborhood. Speeding ticket. I've been stopped nine times in, no, 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 in 20 years. Give me a break. What are you laughing at? I've been stopped nine times in probably... A year, not 20 years. And when they look at my license, I, I had them all say the same thing. They look at my license, and I mean, I wasn't going 100 miles an hour in a 35 miles. So I mean, but there's times you get, you know, lackadaisical, and he'll pull you over, and it walks up, and, I, he, and I'm, I'm right there right around my corner. And he looked at my license, and he said, uh, you live around here? I said, yes, sir. And he says, you just keep it down. He says, I can't give a man a ticket in his own neighborhood. Just watch it. Now, if I'd have been out on 350, if I'd been out someplace else, I'd have got nailed, see? Now, he gave me grace. But if I tried the same thing nine times in the same day, after a while I was going to say, I can't do this anymore. Here, here's a ticket. Probably the second time. And if I look up and I said, ha, I'm in my own neighborhood, he says, yes, you are. Here's your own ticket. Grace runs out after a while in that sense. And as you're a young Christian, you can get away with a lot of things right now. God will cover your bases because you're dumb, stupid, and you're ugly, <laughs> spiritually speaking. But as you grow, you're supposed to come into the image of Christ and be everything that God wants you to be. And then grace runs out. Then you have to, at some point, you have to learn the theory behind what you're doing. There's a theory behind prayer. Now, America now as we know it, it's been almost over 100 years without a Bible. No truth will always lead to people getting bad definitions and bad doctrine and uh, no principles. And God's principles are no longer the rule of the day in most of God's people's lives. People actually think that if you're saved, God automatically hears your prayers because He's required by law. I don't know how many times I'm asked a question. Well, I was at a tough jam and I prayed and prayed and prayed and God just didn't give me an answer. And then I've had other people say, how did I get so messed up in life? I prayed every day of my life. 
That's because people have the idea, misconception by the way, that prayer has something to do with closing your eyes, bowing your head, folding your hands, getting on your knees, position of your body. And of course, in reality, prayer has nothing to do with any of those things. Prayer has to do with the attitude of your heart. Now, I shouldn't say you shouldn't bow your head and close your eyes. We do that out of respect. But we do that out of respect, and I think people come to the point that they think that that's the automatic prayer switch. You stand still, fold your hand, bow your head, close your eyes, take off your hat, and you just a moment, the moment you take that prayer position, God's listening. Well, I got news for you. Prayer, the theory behind prayer has nothing to do with the position of your body, the closing your eyes, the folding your hand, though I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. Don't do it while you're driving. It may be a tough time for you. Prayer, real Bible prayer has nothing to do with your position of your body, but everything to do with the attitude of your heart. Now, what I'm about to do, ladies and gentlemen, is to lay this foundation for you, is I'm going to take another great type in the Old Testament, and I'm going to illustrate the New Testament principle of the Christian life and prayer. And uh, if you want to follow along with this in your Bible, you can, but maybe you just want to sit there and listen because you're not going to be able to take the notes. But again, I'm going to tell you, if you want the definitive work on this, Claren Larkin's book on dispensational truth. In fact, there's a number of books back there that I was looking at this morning. Uh, there's one back there on the, on, the, on the tabernacle, which we're going to, there's one back there on the, uh, uh, there's a book out there, I don't know if we shall have any more, called those irre, irrepressible or irresistible Jews. It's one of the greatest single little pamphlets that they, those are the kind of things I find, I put in my archives, and when I need to brush up on it, it's all right there. Doesn't take a lot of reading, but all the information is where I wanted to get. All right, now back in Exodus chapter 25, verses uh, chapter 25 up to chapter 33. You have, a, you have a, remember in Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48, I told you there were the eight greatest chapters on the millennial reign of Christ. Okay, Exodus chapter 25 through 33 are the greatest chapters of the Old Testament context of the tabernacle. And uh, I got this up here today because I want to use this, and I'm going to kind of, I hope everybody can kind of see it. I'm going to try to do it this way where I can kind of, Get everybody follow me along with it here. And I'm just going to get it. It's got to be a visual. And I'm not pretending to be any kind of uh, artist or anything. I just want to give you a visual here so uh, you understand what we got. So you get a visual of it. Okay, now this is basically your old tabernacle in the Old Testament. And what you got is this. This thing was a tent. And they carried it wherever they went in the Old Testament. Every time they camped, they set it down and they brought it, and they had to put it back up and take it down again. When you look at this, you're going to find that, uh, you're going to find that uh, uh, if you get Clarence Larkin's book, he basically breaks it down this way. This place here was called the Holy of Holies. What is that? There was a veil across here. And that veil, that veil was a picture of where God's throne is and where God is that no man can pass. And inside that thing was the Ark of the Covenant. I know you think that Indiana Jones got it, but he really didn't. That was the Ark of the Covenant. The high priest, the high priest, once a year, 
He'd come through here, he'd make the sacrifice, he'd walk through here, and he'd go on the other side of that deal, and he'd sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat right there. And he'd make an atonement for the nation of Israel. You know what that high priest is a picture of? He's a picture of Christ. Christ is our high priest. And one time, see the high priest had to do it every year. One time, Christ, my high priest, paid the sacrifice here, went in through here, and went into that veil to the Holy of Holies and laid the blood on the mercy seat for your sins and for my sins. See how it works? Now, that priest had sons. They had sons. And, of course, the priest was Aaron. His, that priest had sons. And the high priest did his thing in here where all of his sons, they did the work all through here. Okay? Now, what do you got here is this. This is what you got. And this is one of the greatest studies you'll ever take, and it's key to understanding every aspect of your Christian life, especially prayer. Now, this tabernacle is a picture of your life and my life and our work for Christ. This thing here, this third compartment right here, represents where God's throne is. This second compartment right here, and the first one, represents our work down here as the sons of the high priest. Those sons of the high priest, they had work that they did here every day. It's a picture of your life and my life in the ministry. And if you want to understand ministry, you want to understand what God has called you to do and what He's going to get done through you, then you've got to understand this thing here. Hey, the ministry, the Christian life, this is the theory behind it. Don't get this you won't be any great Christian like I never became a great trumpet player. Why? I didn't want to waste the time to get the theory. I could play good, I sounded good, I could get by with it, and I could make myself look good, but in actuality, if you put a test in front of me on theory, I would flunk. This is the theory behind your Christian life. Now, when you come down through here, when you come down through here, you're going to find that, and we're going to look at these, <coughs> You're going to find you have a brazen altar. You're going to find you have a laver of water. When you get inside this second compartment, this is your ministry right here. There's three things in here that either make you or break you when it comes to ministry. These are the three things right here, all right? Somebody, real loud, who's got a good voice, stand up and read for me. Find 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Who wants to do it for me? Real loud. Need somebody with a loud voice, somebody that can project, somebody that can resonate. Who wants to do it? Who can do it? Zach, you want to do it? All right, Zach. Real loud. You got it? First Timothy, second Timothy chapter three. Turn around and face the crowd. Got it? Go ahead. All right, hold it right there. We're going to get the next verse. All Scripture is given by inspiration. That's the Bible. And is profitable. Doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. All right, read the next one. That the man of God, go ahead. Perfect. Now you read those two words. Truly furnished. Truly furnished. All your new Bibles will say thoroughly finished. It isn't thoroughly finished. It's truly furnished. 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 Like furniture. You know why? Because 
Inside here where the ministry is, there's three purses of furniture. And when the man of God gets perfected for the work of God, for the ministry, it's because of these three pieces of furniture and what they represent on the inside so it's truly, truly from the inside out furnished, not finished. You want a ministry? You want to be used of God? You want to perfect yourself daily in the work of the ministry for God? Then it's, once you get saved, it's these three things. All right? We're going to look at them. I'm going to write them up here right now. First one's the Word of God. Second one's the Holy Spirit. Third one's your prayer life. Three things. Three things. All right, let's look at them. Let's look at them. You got three things here you've got to deal with. All right, we're going to go back and put the whole thing in perspective. First of all, we got the brazen altar. Now, that brazen altar, if you want to study it sometimes, found in Ezekiel chapter 27. That brazen altar is where it's made out of brass. You know why? Because it's a picture of God's judgment. That's where the sacrifice was burnt. The sacrifice was burnt right there. Now, if you look just on the other side of that, you'd find an opening going into that tabernacle. That brazen altar is where the sacrifice of God was burnt and made. It's a picture of Christ's death on the cross, the brass representing God's judgment, and the way that he placed that thing strategically right there is beyond belief. This is the work of the ministry here. These three things are the furnishings that we need to have in our life. But you cannot get in here without coming through here. In other words, you got to get saved first. You can't get into the ministry until you get past the brazen altar where the sacrifice was made. Now, once that, that priest, son of the priest, once he went in here, he went in and went out. Went in and went out. He'd do the sacrifice, he'd go in. He'd come out. He'd work in here, he'd work out here. You know what you got right here? You got a laver of water. And on that laver of water, you got seven spigots. You see, the tabernacle had no floor in it. They just put it down wherever. And when the priest and the sons of the priest walked in and out of here, their feet got dirty. It's a lot like you and me having to live in this world, in this world, but not of this world. What happens when you go to work? What happens when you go out with your friends? What happens when you just generally get around the things of this world? I'll tell you what happens. You get your feet dirty. Your walk with God gets tainted because we have to walk in this world. You know what? Every time he came out, before he went back in, he went over to that laver of water and he washed his feet. That's a picture of you and me getting in the Word of God and before we try to do anything for God every morning. And when you come to church, when you get up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, throughout your day, you ought to be in a constant state of washing your feet, making sure your feet are clean in your walk with God because of the dirt that we pick up in this world. All right, once he goes in there, now you're, on the, you're in the work area. And the first thing I want you to see over here in the work area is right over here. This thing right here is called the, it's called the table of showbread. 
It's not spelled S-H-O-W. It's the old English word, S-H-E-W. See? Now, this bread was made fresh every day. That bread was made by the priest. And it was put on that table, and the priests were the only ones who could eat that food. They're the only ones who could eat that bread. That bread represents the Word of God. Notice it's on a table. The table represents the fellowship you and I have with the Word of God. Now, three things to the theory behind ministry. One is the Word of God. That's right here. Right there. That thing, notice it has, it has, it has 12 loaves of bread. From the Old Testament standpoint, there's 12 tribes. So there's one from each tribe. Ah, oh, but watch the Holy Spirit of God. Notice how it's laid out. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. You know why? Because whoever wrote that knew there was going to become a Bible that man shall not live by bread alone. There was going to have 66 books in it. So you got six at the top, you got six in the bottom. Now it's called the shoe bread. You know why it's called the shoe bread? It's on display. You know why it's called shoe bread? It's because you and I ought to be a walking Bible to the world. What you and I take into our life, the ministry, working for God, it shouldn't be what you have to say to people that make them understand you're a Christian. It should be what you show them, shoe bread, how you live. All right, we got the Word of God. Second thing we got down here is down here called the seven golden candlesticks, right here. A, a candlestick with seven candles on it. Now, when you look at this and you understand this, you begin to see, and you'll find this in Exodus chapter 25, verse 31, and Exodus chapter 27, verse 20. The uh, shoe bread uh, we'll find in Exodus chapter uh, 25, 23. Now, this candlestick of seven candles represents the Holy Spirit of God. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 2 says that these lamps are never to go out. They are to burn 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. And yet the Bible says that these lampstands, and I love this, it's made of beaten gold. Now, why didn't it just say gold? Why did it say beaten gold? I'll tell you why. Because it's a picture of the Holy Spirit of, com Holy Spirit of God coming through the crucifixion where he was beaten on that cross for you. That's why. So he puts in the word beaten gold. Beaten gold. Now I said <coughs> these, uh, these, two, uh, this, these lamps were supposed to burn forever. There's only two times in your Bible, two times, you find where these lamps go out. Only two. Only two times. The, the requirement was that they go seven days a week, 24 hours a day, but you find two places in the Bible where there is no light. One of them is in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 3, when Israel was in the height of its wickedness. And the second one is in Revelation chapter 3, verse 16, in the Laodicean church age, the church age that you and I live in right now. The Bible says that, that light, that candle, is spewed out of the mouth of God. It burns with holy oil, picture of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, when that priest is in here doing his work, which is the picture of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God, the three furnishings we need in ministry, when that priest is in here, he's working all through here. But when he's working over on this table, he can't approach that because the only light you have in there is off the Holy Spirit of God in those candlesticks. The only true light you ought to have in your life is by the Holy Spirit of God. 
You see, when that priest is doing his work, if he comes around here and he, he, he stands in front of the table, he blocks the light. And when he's in front of the book, he can't see what he's doing because the light's behind him and he's blocking the light. In other words, when he does the work, he needs to go behind the table, behind the book, that he doesn't obstruct the light from the Holy Spirit of God that's illuminating that book. You know what happens when you go to Bible college and they, they educate you out of your Bible intelligence? You know what happens when you get out there and do your own thing, when the Bible clearly tells you to do something else? You're standing in front of the Holy Spirit. Oh, you got the Bible. But the problem is you're blocking the light from the Holy Spirit of God with yourself. You're not willing to get behind the table and let the light show you. You want to get in front of it. But when you get in front of it, then you got to do it yourself. Absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but when you walked into here, you were out here, this is out in the daytime. See, daytime, outside in the, in the cloudless sky, bright sun. You walked in there, and that thing is pitch black except for seven candles burning over here. Now, that's a great, that's a great thing. Remember now, this thing represents ministry. This thing's are the three furnishings you've got to have, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, and your prayer life. This thing represents those three elements of the furnishings that you need to have in your life that perfect you. You ever been to a place where <clears throat> you went to a moving picture show and you, you went in there and you were, you know, out there, bought your tickets, got your popcorn, and then uh, you walk in there and when you walk in, you, you're like you're blind. And if you don't do something, you're going to spill your popcorn over the lady in the front seat or the guy sitting beside her. So what do you do? You stand still. And what, what has to happen for you to be able to move on through that? Your eyes have to adjust to the light. Well, when that priest went into that second compartment, every time he went in, you know what he had to do? He had to stop. Because if he didn't stop and he tried to operate when he couldn't see, he'd make a mess out of things. So what he did is he stopped. And he waited till he, his eyes got adjusted to the light. You know what principle that is in the Bible? I'll tell you. You want in ministry? You want to get into ministry? You want to do something for God in the ministry? Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, not a novice. What does that mean? You got to know what you're doing. You got to understand the theory behind it. So this priest comes in. Before he jumps in and does everything, he stands still and waits for his eyes to get used from coming to the world's light to God's light. That's why you need to have a time in your life that you go through an adjustment, that you learn biblical principles, that you learn that you don't jump in ministry as a novice, that you learn there's absolute principles that you have to put into your life, you have to operate by if these three things here are going to work in your life. All right? We got the Word of God. We got the Holy Spirit of God. Now let's look at the last one. We've got the book so far. We've got the Holy Spirit. Now let's look at your prayer life. And here it comes. The theory behind prayer. This is why you have to see this before you understand where we're going. This is like explaining the rapture before we got into Romans 8. Explaining the millennium before we got into the great passages. You have to understand the theory of prayer before you start to put in your life. <clears throat> All right, this thing here, right here it is. You know what that's called? It's called the altar of incense. What's that, Bob? That's an altar 
that when you come through the Bible and study it, you'll find that Exodus chapter 30, verse 1, it was right next to the Holy Holies. And what they did is that they made incense. They mixed that incense with holy oil. And they burned that incense on this golden incense burner right here. And it gave off a smell. In fact, it was so somewhat thick that it almost produced a haze or a cloud in that room. And it gave off a smell that you could smell everywhere in that tent. My friend, that is a picture of your prayer life. This thing here was to burn 24-7. You know why? Because the Bible says that we are to pray without ceasing. That's why. It's one of the most incredible concepts of your prayer life. And for you to have an effective ministry, you've got to know the theory behind the Word of God, the Holy Spirit. I've already, we do this all the time. I've already given you this when we studied the Holy Spirit of God in Romans 8. Now you're getting this one. You're getting this one. Turn over to Revelation chapter 5. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 5. <clears throat> Look at verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and, and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps. And here it comes. Golden vials of odors, like somebody burning incense, which are the prayers of the saints. See that thing? Now that's why on, on uh, New Year's Eve, when we went through the Song of Solomon, you find that woman, a picture of the church, always connected with smelling good. Always some kind of perfume. Always some kind of, of a pleasant odor uh, that she's giving off. It's a picture of our prayer life. And you're going to find it over and over and over and over again that the church is represented as a virtuous woman who gives off an incredible smell that when God smells it, it builds him to the point where he even loves us more. We do it in an earthly sense down here. Women buy perfume to lure men. Men buy cologne to lure women. Lure, lure. And that's what we do. We think, uh, you know what, they make billions and billions of dollars every year off you what you smell like. And you'll buy this, and you'll buy that, and you'll, you'll, it's, they're called by seductive names, obsession. Like if he smells it, he'll be obsessed with you. You know, chance encounter. You know, Holstein. Personally, my favorite. <clears throat> I want you to see something here. You don't have to turn to it. But I want you to write this down. I love it. This is, what I, this is why I love the Bible. This is why I, I just, years ago, there's things like this, that there's nothing in this world that holds my attention like this book. Exodus chapter 30, verse 23. In that passage, they talk about making. They actually give you how they make the incense. It's one of the most incredible things. I, I love, this is what I love about the Bible. This is where, when I say what I say, 90% of the time, it's based absolutely on the principles in the Bible. I don't make anything up very often. But you're coming down there, and it tells you how to make the incense. And it says in chapter 30, verse 23, 
that they have to take principal spices. I like the word principal. In other words, any spices wouldn't do. They have to be principal spices. You know why? Because there's principles by which your prayer life has to operate. And then they take those principal spices, and what do they mix them with down in verse 25? The holy oil. Picture the Holy Spirit of God. When you mix the principles of the Word of God, principal spices, and I guarantee you, and I'll never figure it out, but you list those spices down through there, if you could figure out what those spices represent to God, you'd have you something on prayer. I don't have a clue, so don't ask. And please don't run up and tell me you figured it out in the last three seconds. But those principal spices are there for a reason, and they mean something. I mean, the mirth, I know. You get into that cassette stuff and all that other stuff, you find that stuff over in Song of Sodom, but I have no idea. No idea. But I know this. You take the principles of the Word of God, i.e. the principal spices, and you mix them with the holy oil, the Holy Spirit of God, and it gives off a smell through your prayer life that is pleasant to God. Now, I don't mean to be crude. I don't mean to be gross, but I've been known for that before, so what's the point? Basically speaking, brethren, I'm saying our, not yours. You know what our problem is? Our prayer life stinks. It gives off the wrong odor. Because this whole thing of our Christian walk with God is based on how it smells. And the problem with you and me is our prayer life stinks. God is expecting one smell and he's getting something else. You know what the Bible says? Over You ever, you ever been around a dead corpse that's been dead for a long time? You ever been around a dead corpse that's been bloated with flies all over it, that the maggots has been decomposing, or maybe a bunch of them? You get a whiff of that, and I don't care if you haven't eaten for three days, you will be puking up your guts over on the side of the road. You know why? The smell is such a stench that it just invokes you throwing up. You ever read Revelation chapter 3, where the Bible says that a church, God says, the Laodicean church, our church, the church period we live in, because you're neither cold nor hot, he says, I'm going to spew thee out of my mouth. The stench of the church's prayer life has made God so sick that he throws up the church right out of his mouth. Think about that for a while. Our prayer life stinks. That's the problem. God throws the, spews the representing angel, which is our candlestick, out of his mouth because the stench of this church is so dastardly terrible that God cannot stomach it. Now here's why, and here's the key to the reason why God doesn't hear. 99% of God's people when they pray. And it's based on the fact that you got the wrong heart. I'm going to show you something. I'm going to show you probably the greatest single thing you ever found out about you and your relationship with God. And you know what? Some of you will do with this exactly what you do with everything else I give you. Turn back to Numbers chapter 3. Now we've already established the fact that this thing here is a picture of your relationship with God. And this particular here is a picture of your ministry. We've already established the fact that there has to be a theory behind ministry. There has to be a theory behind everything that we do. Just doing it without knowing why we're doing it is going to mess us up. There's a theory behind ministry, and it's based on three aspects. The Word of God. There's a theory behind the Bible. 
Two, Holy Spirit of God. There's a theory behind the Holy Spirit of God. Three, prayer, your prayer life. There's a theory behind our prayer life. Now look over at Numbers chapter 3, verse 1. It says, These also are the generations of Aaron and Moses in the day that the Lord spake with Moses in Mount Sinai. And these are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab, the firstborn, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the priests which were anointed, whom he consecrated to minister in the priest's office. All right? You can take yourself. We know Aaron is the high priest. We know that. You can take Nadab, uh, Abihalu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, and you can put us in those four guys. They were the sons of the priests that worked under the high priest that did the work inside this area, which we now know is a picture of my minist- our ministry. They dealt with the showbread, Word of God. They dealt with the candlestick, Holy Spirit of God. And they dealt with the, the incense altar, your prayer life. Now watch what happens. And this is the reason. This is the absolute reason. We know now why God does not hear the prayer of an unsaved person. But this is the absolute reason why God does not hear the prayers of 99% of His own children. And then I throw most of you into the category of grace. You heard me say that. But don't ride that bike too far. Tires will go flat. Verse 4. And Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord. How? Why? What happened? And Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered strange Fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. And Eleazar and Ithamar ministered in the priest's office in the sight of Aaron, their father. The fire to light this incense. The fire, listen to me, the fire to ignite your prayer life. The fire to light that incense, which represents your prayer. That fire to light that had to come off of that brazen altar right there. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, if your prayers don't go back in their fundamental theory to Christ's death on the cross, you're offering strange fire. You know what those boys did? They got fire from a bick. They got fire someplace else. And God killed them because the fire to light that brazen altar which had to be a picture of our prayer life that is a prayer of our, our prayers going up to God your prayer has to go back to what God did for you on Calvary's cross now how you say how do you do that don't you remember don't you remember just what three four months ago on a Thursday night somebody asked me the question about the great passages in the Bible that showed us the real sufferings on the cross that Christ paid for your life and for my life. And I took you through Job. I took you through Psalms. I took you through Isaiah. And I showed almost you most hour by hour, in some cases minute by minute, the agonizing uh, mindset of Christ dying on the cross. I showed you in the Old Testament when he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I took you behind the curtain and showed you how the devil and the demons were tormenting him through the scribes and the Pharisees. I showed you his agony. I showed you the price that was paid. And most of you, if not all of you, did exactly with that what you'll do with this. It made no difference in your life. When you come to prayer, it isn't about what Christ did for you. 
When you come and ask God for something, it isn't about what he did for you. It's about what can you do for me today? That's strange fire. You never go into prayer based on just what you think your needs are. You take them back and realize when you understand that your prayer, whatever you're asking, whatever your need is, when you run it back through the cross and see what he went through for you, you may not even ask him anymore to solve your problem because you're going to get a perspective that he went through some things for you and my dear friend, we're going to go have to through some things for him. But what do we do? Every time we run to God, bail me out, get me out, oh, help me God, fix this, take it away. And we wonder why our prayers don't get answered. We wonder why God doesn't hear the prayers of the Laodicean Christian. I'll tell you why. Because you've kindled your fire from the wrong place. Your prayer life doesn't go back to the cross. It goes back to your problem. It goes back to what you want. It goes back to what you think you need. It goes back to you ordering God around and telling him what is best for you because you know better than he does. It isn't putting yourself in a submission mode where you look at what you're going through and then you liken it back to the fire off of that thing right there. It's about the jam you got yourself in. It's about the violated principles that you put in your life. We've done them, and now we're faced with the consequences, and all we know how to do is say, Oh, God, get me out of this mess. Well, there was a time when God's son basically said that to his father. My God, my God, why has he fors thou forsaken me? And not only did he still get forsaken, he never even got an answer. In the death of Christ on the cross lies every answer to why you and I don't get what we think we ought to get. And the problem with God's people today is the problem with Aaron's two boys. They were priests. They did the work. But they didn't get the fire for their prayer off the right altar. God killed them for it. Leviticus chapter 16 verse 12 tells you clearly that that fire to light that incense comes off the brazen altar, the crucifixion. You know what that tells me? That tells me that any prayer that doesn't have its original point source at the cross and the sufferings of the cross to compare with your sufferings, that God's prayer request or Christ's prayer request to his Father and your prayer request to your Father, you don't put them in the same context. And that's why it entails that most of our prayer is absolutely worthless before God because we've kindled it off another fire. Three pieces of furniture, ladies and gentlemen, for the work of the ministry after salvation. And each one of them have a theory behind it. You're either going to be like me when I played the trumpet and not know the theory and become an okay Christian but never merely mean anything to God because you don't have the theory behind what you're doing. i got to tell you, I've been a halfway guy all my life. 
I never gave any more than I thought I had to just to get by. That's just my character and my makeup. Got me in a lot of trouble sometimes, but that's where I was. The only thing in my life, and I can say this before God this morning, the only thing in my life that I have never done halfway, the only thing in my life, and I couldn't tell you today why it's different there than it is before, but the only thing in my life, the only thing in my life that sets me apart from the halfway measures I did it and cutting across the field and finding a shortcut and doing it my way, the only thing that I ever did right by the book, down the line, by the principles, was when I got into that book. Everything else in my life, I did it my way. And I was good at it. You talked, heard me talk about Jacob a couple weeks ago. You're looking at Jacob before I got that thing settled. I could find a way to get it done, do it right, make it look good, and put it off as being the real deal when it even wasn't. But boy, and I don't know why it is. I couldn't tell you today why it is. But I thank God that it, 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 it is this way. The only thing in my life that I ever did right, the only thing in my life that I ever did right after getting saved was the way I approached that book that I quit cutting the corners and I did it by the principles. And that's why I put them to you all the time. That's why, and maybe you can see it now, trying to study prayer, it would have just been another one of the little rinky-dinky sermons you would have heard from a little rinky-dinky pastor. It would have been another little, another little sermonette you could get on a cassette from a little preacherette. It would have just been another little nice little thing that you could have laid out and you could have went home and felt all nice. Hey, without understanding the theory behind why you pray, without understanding this level of involvement in your life of how you need to make this thing work, we might as well forget it. There's a theory behind your prayer. Now we've got some of the misconceptions out of the way. We now know that your life, if you're going to be the man of God that perfects his ministry, or the woman of God, it says that the man of God may be perfect. That's not sinlessly perfect. None of us are going to be sinlessly perfect, but you can be perfect as to the ministry. You'll never be perfect in your life, but you can be perfect in your approach to the ministry. And the ministry now has been defined. The Word of God, the Holy Spirit of God, and your prayer life, those are the furnishings that you need to provide inside of you. That you as the priest all of your life, until Jesus comes, you're going to work in that area of that great tabernacle, your body. And it's going to be based on the Word of God, you showing the Word of God, the seven-pronged candlestick, and your prayer life the altar of incense. Doing those three things will perfect you. Now you know. You can't ever, 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 ever come to the place that you don't, you go to God in prayer without understanding that the fire from that incense that's going before God's nostrils has to go back to the day He died on the cross and what He suffered for you. You see, we don't like suffering for Him. We really don't. We're very casual type Christians. Yes, we are. We don't like to be inconvenienced. We don't like to have any problems. We don't like to have any glitches in the, in, the, in the system. We want everything to run nice and smooth so we can just live our lives down here. But you know what? The real Christian life just isn't that way. And for you to deal in your prayer life accurately and honestly with God, you need to have a fire kindled that goes back to his sufferings and understanding the price that he paid and realizing that you must pay that price too.
one of the greatest verses we're going to get into in Romans chapter, in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 12, where it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice. He was the dead sacrifice, that you might be the living sacrifice. But the prayers are the same. The sacrifices are the same. The heartaches are the same. The trials are the same. I'm going to show you in the weeks to come. I'm going to show you as a Christian what you have a right to ask God for and what you don't have a right to ask God for. And we'll learn some things about prayer. We're dismissed here this morning. Just a second when I pray. I want you to take the time this morning. If you haven't got your application in for Danny back there for volleyball, please stop and do that this morning. You also need to stop and sign up for that thing that Scott's going to do on the Bible. It'll help change your perspective and give you the basis from which we need to work with. Take the time to do that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus.